Who can say where the killer roams, where the blood flows? It's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Hey Slayers, welcome back to Slay Away. I'm Anola Lagosi and I'm here to chat about lore, gore, true crime, and every kill in between while I review horror films with special guests every other Friday night. On this episode, we're exploring good suffering and Clive Barker's Hellraiser with my friend Matt Shacha, Community Development Manager at Gun Media. You know Gun, they made Friday the 13th the game uh, that we all love, period. That's all we're going to say about it. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, Matt. You've been here before. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. It's going really good. We were actually, uh, you were actually the first guest we ever had on the podcast almost a year ago now. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I, I feel like I remember, I remember you saying, yeah, first guest, you know, dot, dot, dot. I didn't realize it's been a year though. God, time is like just. Almost. It's in January. It'll be okay, a year. So, so not quite, but way. it kind of feels like it. We're, we're, we're like, a, we're getting over the finish line to where we get into Q4 of 2021. Yeah. Well, I mean, and clocks and calendars currently are not really right. carrying all that much weight to me. I, I, I don't know. Oh, I'm totally. Just, I'm just living my life and I, I, I try to figure out what day it is each morning. So. Yes. <laughs> Well, are you ready to chat horror with me today? Always, always ready. So how did you, and I know I've asked you this question before, but for all the new listeners out there, how did you discover your love of horror? I recall that this film had something to do with it. Yeah. Um, well, I had seen horror films before I saw Hellraiser, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I was a very young kid and I, I guess I just was able to get my hands on horror movies probably a lot of people would say too young, but you know, uh, I, I, I can remember going back to like five, six being horrified by horror movies. Um, but the, the thing about Hellraiser that really kind of solidified my love for horror was the, uh, my fear of pinhead. Um, at the time, you know, he's kind of the lead, you know, he's the, as much as he's not in the film, a whole hell of a lot, he's, um, the big bad and in in the u.s i i actually have had couple a couple of chats about this kind of weird behavior in the u.s with horror films where in the 80s we went through this like villain worship period where it was you know the camp counselors didn't matter but jason you know and um uh all the kids on on elm street eh, that was you know you had a couple of people that were notable but freddie you know and um michael myers you know and and so uh, a lot of people kind of, you know, they gravitated toward the villains and whether or not the, um, the, the characters, the counselors, teenagers, whoever came back wasn't nearly as important as the villain, you know, and then you saw in a couple of horror franchises where they tried to make the villain a little more amorphous and people rejected it like Halloween three. We talk about season of the witch. <laughs> That's a great one to, to come up on. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween three. And, and Friday the 13th part five. Um, I was the same way, though. I was like, what the fuck is this? Where's Michael Myers? I know he might have died or something, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. And I think really maybe our concepts of what anthologies were and how they worked. It wasn't as popular at the time. Yeah. Um, even though there were film series that were in some ways connected because, you know, there were a lot of horror filmmakers that had sort of their this is their. Um, I don't know if you would call it a trilogy exactly, but it's a trilogy of films, but they're not exactly interconnected. Right. 
but they maybe are in the same universe. There were quite a few of those. Well, and I mean, when you look at movies like Halloween 3 and um, Friday the 13th Part 5, where they tried to do something new, where they were like, this was like um, kind of pre the like uh, supernatural villains of the franchises when they were like, well, how do we keep this guy coming back? You know, well, you know, on Friday it was in part five, it's a shifting kind of thing where anybody can be Jason, you know, given the right circumstances, all that. And audiences kind of hated it. And they were like, give us back Jason, like the actual Jason and give us back Michael Myers, you know? And so, um, there's definitely like villain worship there. So obviously, even though Pinhead, you know, he's not in the film that much, he's all the marketing, he's the lead, you know, he's all the marketing, he's all the, his face is on everything. And, um, uh, yeah. So basically, you know, the, the newspaper ran this ad, it was like a full page of Pinhead's face, just making that snarl. And, uh, it scared the the living shit out of me. And my father used to tease me with it. And like, you know, he taped it to the back of the bathroom door and then put my towel all over it while I was in the shower. So when I got wow. out of the shower <laughs> and I took my towel down, it was Pinhead staring back at me. And like, I was legitimately God, I terrified. I wish that my family was that cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool now. <laughs> I mean, like now I'd be like, man, I wish I had a cool dad um, at the time that I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. Because it's cool now. It was not so cool then. <clears throat> but um, yeah, so I, I, as horrified as I was, I was fascinated by it. And I was kind of like... Um, uh, just fell in love with that feeling of being afraid. And that was the, the, the first time I really kind of remember, because again, I was seven when Hellraiser came out. So it was the first time I remember making sense out of that being like, God, I'm, it scares the crap out of me. I just want to see more though. And like, it was the, the like kind of age old thing of the kid peeking between the fingers when they cover their face, you know, during scary parts. And it, it, it was the first point in my life. I, I know that seems like a young age to have these kinds of thoughts, but the first point in my life where I realized that being scared was thrilling, you know, in some way, even if I didn't have the words to, um, you know, verbalize that. And so, yeah, Hellraiser always will be special to me because as much as I love so many horror movies and so many franchises and all of that, um, that was the first time I noticed that I was, I kind of had like, I mean, you know, I, I, I hate to say it like this because it sounds weird, but like a kink for being scared, you know what I mean? Like I just enjoyed being scared. And I think that, um, it was the first time that I, I, I realized like th the thrill in being afraid. And, um, so yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I then You're like down, me, yeah. I, I looked it up. I'm a phobophile. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not actually, it doesn't actually mean like kink necessarily, but, but you it get means what I mean. you like yeah. the thrill of being scared. Yeah. But you get um, what I mean. I, or you know. uh, fear excites you kind of a thing in, in a weird way. I don't know, but that's what it, the word means. And so I was like, oh yeah, that's me. That is the perfect word for it because yes, it is not necessarily a kink, but it is definitely kind of fringe to be like, this scares the shit out of me. Give me more, you know? Um, yeah. I have a cousin who, uh, me and him talk at length about this, who he, he's not a very big horror fan. Uh, his name's Chase. Um, he, he's just such a good buddy of mine, never mind being a family member. And, um, 
yeah, so we've talked at length about this. And he's like, I don't understand. You're such a scaredy cat. How are you horror guy? And I was like, that's why I'm horror guy. That's what I'm here for. You know, um, I'm here for that. And, and he, he, it's, it's interesting because he's not that way. And he's, so he just can't wrap his head around the idea that like, you know, this shit scares you, but you're here for it. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's, yeah, you nailed it. And he's like, but what? <laughs> yeah, it's, but you know, as fellow horror fans, we understand. So um, I'm right there with you. But <laughs> so you also told me that Return of the Living Dead is actually your favorite horror film. And I do promise um, to have you back to chat about it. I want to know why it's your favorite. Well, uh, you know, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, I, I got into punk rock when I was 12, right? So seven was, I, I had seen horror movies before seven, but seven was when, you know, Hellraiser was a thing. And, and I really kind of was like, okay, horror is my thing. That's something I'm interested in. Um, when I was 12, I got into punk rock and I hadn't seen Return of the Living Dead prior to that. So I saw it late, you know, but there's something cool about horror, particularly like gory horror or even fringe horror that kind of, um, is very like, you know, the, the video nasties and things like that, that kind of shock folks and, and, and all of that. There's, there's just so many cool like parallels with punk rock and horror. Um, you know, punk rock being something that was designed to kind of be a middle finger at, at certain things and, and to kind of provoke a reaction from people. Um, you know, um, the idea of that versus like super gory splatter horror and things like that. They, they, you find a lot of horror fans in punk rock circles and vice versa. And, um, when I got into punk rock, all of my punk rocker friends were like, you're a punk rocker who likes horror and you've never seen return of the living dead, like for shame. And so I watched it and obviously loved it. There's, there's so much punk rock elements in that, the idea, the concepts of like no future and things like that. And, um, you know, basically a doomed existence and, and, you know, all of that, uh, as well as the, uh, a really great zombie story, uh, mixed in there. Matter of fact, one of the zombie stories that's responsible for basically what most average people know about zombies, which is really interesting because, um, you know, neither living dead and movies like that, they are, they have zombies in them, but it's not the generic zombie that everybody thinks of when you say the word zombie, like, oh yeah, shuffle insane brains and want to eat your brains and things like that. That's actually Return of the Living Dead's fault that, that that's even a thing. The whole idea of zombies eating brains came from Return of the Living Dead. Yep. It's actually very uh, clearly in there, too. It's like a famous quote from the film. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a meme and a gif and all these different things in no popular way that one. And, social and culture now. <laughs> Well, and not to mention when you then, you know, when you become a fan of the film, when you go back and you read about um, how that film came to be and, you know, George Romero and um, Russo uh, and how they split and, and how things worked out with different scripts and rights and things. And they're, they're all friendly. So it's not like a, a sordid tale by any stretch. But, um, you know, you find out how all that came together and how Dan O'Bannon, who had worked on Alien, you know, yeah, all of that, those yeah. things kind of all of that comes together and, and, and um you know, uh, uh, it makes for some really cool, um, behind the scenes stuff as well. So, yeah, I just, from that moment on, I, when I, being a young kid getting into punk rock and meeting all those other punk rocker horror fans, uh, Return of the Living Dead was a no brainer. There's this whole bit of dialogue and it, I think it's within the opening sequences of that film where they, um, it's kind of the punk rock kids walking down the sidewalk and they're talking about getting laid in a cemetery. <laughs> and I just like... <laughs> 
okay. I was like, yeah, this is cool. I can get into this. It's so, just a weird kind of like, yeah. And then they just having a whole conversation about it. At the same time, we're seeing um, this other stuff happening in the warehouse or whatever. Well, and one of the best lines right in that same scene, the guy, Chuck, is constantly trying to hit on the girl, Casey. Yes. And so somebody says something about sex and death. And Chuck says, what about you, Casey? You like sex and death? And Casey's response to him is perfect. She says, yeah, I do. So fuck off and die. And it's just the best because I'm like, that's so great. That's like so perfect. You know, like, what about you, Casey? You like sex and death? Yeah. So fuck off and die. I'm just like, this, that's such good writing. <laughs> we mentioned that you've been on the podcast before and um returning listeners know you know that you work in the game industry and that you're a huge horror fan it's near and dear to your heart so i'm curious if you you could just tell everyone really quickly about um gun media and what you do well uh i'm a lead community developer at gun and uh what i do is i basically i'm the um the head of, of how we build communities around our brands. And, and what that means is, you know, there's many different disciplines within community, but how you develop a community around your brands, it, it, that's, that's more of a, a core strategy and, and something that you have to kind of define and, and, and build out at, in a company like gun. And so as much as, you know, we're an indie studio and we all wear a lot of hats, I, I end up doing a lot of the community management stuff as well and influencer relations and some public relations and things like that. Ultimately, what my role at Gun is, and uh, as Gun expands and grows and things, what it'll become more of is defining how we we interact with our fans and, and how we create these communities around the things that we work on. Um, so yeah, that that means a lot of you know managing our our social accounts, managing not just our social accounts in conversation, but our social accounts in brand voice, and and managing our advertising spend on those. There's so many different sides to it, but the short version of it is anybody who works in community effectively is the voice of the community to the development team and the voice of the development team to the community. Where it gets a little different with a, a community developer is, I, I especially at Gun, I get to help ensure that in the future, all of our products, uh, all of our games, all of our, our projects, I guess is the best word for it. Um, they all, uh, keep the community in mind at various stages of development. So that may be early on by, by helping to consult on different areas in the game and make sure that, uh, community pain points are addressed as early as possible and things like that. But, you know, it, it, it's not always reactive. A lot of times it's, you know, especially now we're working on a project that's very under wraps. Um, and when we, when we're ready to share more on that, we will obviously, but in those early stages too, it's a very active role because it's trying to make sure that, that we're, we're, um, avoiding any p potential community pit pitfalls. Oh, that's a lot of, that's, that's a tough one. Avoiding potential community <laughs> pitfalls as early on as possible. So that when we do, uh, launch to the community, we're not, kind of, you know, stumbling in areas that we, we could possibly avoid. So it's nice because I get to focus on the community things where sometimes, you know, everybody's focused on different elements, design and things like that. And in a perfect world, you imagine that they're focused on everything at all times, but it's just simply not plausible that way. So my biggest role right now is to be the voice at the table for the community, for our, our uh, future endeavors. 
let's jump into Hellraiser. Let's talk yeah, about oh, the yeah, film. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, that's what we're here now. Yeah, we're here. <laughs> we're going to talk about Hellraiser. Um, so film introductions here, just kind of talking a little bit about it. So Hellraiser is a 1987 British horror film that explores, uh, as I've read, the themes of sadomasochism, pain as a source of pleasure, and morality under duress and fear. So it's based on the critically acclaimed novella, The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Um, Barker also wrote and uh, wrote the screenplay and directed the film. And uh, in the UK, the film is actually titled Clive Barker's Hellraiser versus just Hellraiser. And it's the first film in the Hellraiser series. Uh, subsequently, we ended up with nine sequels and there's more to come. So um, this has had a very long legacy and big impact in general on the horror community. The film was released September 18th, 1987. So happy birthday, Hellraiser. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. It is at this time you should stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast. And if you haven't seen the film that we're talking about today, please go watch the film, come back, and then continue on this journey with us because we want you to enjoy it right along with us. And another thing that you can do is send us your thoughts about the film at slayawayradio at gmail.com or you can contact us on Twitter at slayawayradio. Now let's get back to the film. So sexual deviant Frank, <laughs> who's played by Sean Chapman, inadvertently opens a portal to hell when he tinkers with a box he bought while abroad. The act unleashes gruesome beings called Cenobites who tear Frank's body apart. When Frank's brother Larry, played by Andrew Robinson, and his wife Julia, played by Claire Higgins, move into Frank's old house, they accidentally bring what is left of Frank back to life. Frank then convinces Julia, his one-time lover, to lure men back to the house so he can use their blood to reconstruct himself. This is essentially really one of the, um, it, it's very much a one-of-a-kind slasher film based off of that. I think, I think that's a good synopsis, but not a great one. No, and you know, here's the thing. Uh, Frank is so much more than a sexual deviant, right? Um, he's a bad character, obviously, but, um, you know, the situation with Frank that, that amuses me in, in, in this film is, is the idea that he's somebody that like, 
you know, he lives to such excess, like he, he chases thrills to such excess that eventually he he's numbed by, by that lifestyle. And that's kind of what drives them to the box. Right. And, uh, the whole, the whole idea of pinhead being the engineer and, and, um, you know, the Cenobites being the, the kind of the tool at which you, you unravel yourself, you know, um, nobody ends up there. It, it, the box kind of speaks to their curiosity, right. And speaks to their morbid kind of curiosities and their, their excessive curiosities. And by opening that, it's kind of the last stage in your own undoing. So there's a self-destruction in, you know, undertone in, in this movie. And I think that, you know, the important part to recognize because it's the part that lives on through just about all of the sequels, even the ones that are not that great, um, is the idea that, each person is responsible for their own undoing. The Cenobites are just kind of the, the wards of that. They make sure that uh, they're, they're there to make that happen. You know, um, you seek that level of excess and that level of suffering or pain or whatever pleasure, whatever it is that you're looking for. And the Cenobites are like to the nth degree of that. And they're, that's why they show up and, and um, do what they do so well. But the, to, to say he's a sexual deviant kind of minimizes so much more about the Frank character. Yeah, and I didn't really see him that way exactly. No, and I mean, you know, he's promiscuous and he's, uh, you know, kind of has a very, uh, you know, um, I don't know the right word, but, you know, he has a very, like, uh, uh, flippant view of, of sexual interaction and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you see in some of Julia's memories where the real Frank is there and they're, you know, together, but he seems distant because he's not getting that thrill anymore out of like, you know, having an affair with his brother's uh, wife and things like, you know, because those were things that used to drive him, things that used to thrill Frank and they're not thrilling him anymore. And it's, so that's, it's those stages of excess and, and seeking, you know, pain and pleasure and things like that, which again is, is the, the entire theme, pain and pleasure. That's the entire theme of, 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 the, you know, the work, but, um, the idea that Frank pushes that to such a point where he's willing to open the box, he, he unravels himself. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's about basically self-destruction really more than anything. And I know that seems weird to say because it's not him that hurts himself. It's the Cenobites, but the Cenobites again are just, uh, they're, they're just a face. They're just a vehicle. They're just, they're the engineer of, of, of the end. You know, they're not the, uh, they're not doing it because they're sick and, and this, that, the other. I mean, they're, they're doing it because you opened the box. We came. Right. He's more of a pleasure adrenaline junkie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be a good way to put it. And and they do show in some of the later ones, they lean more into that as well. And so, you know, it, it's a common theme throughout all of them. The idea of, you know, living to excess until you become numb and you end up finding your way to the box, which is like the ultimate, um, as far as those things are concerned. So let's take a minute to talk about the Cenobites here. So um, the Cenobites are extra dimensional beings who appear in the novella, The Hellbound Heart, uh, the sequels, The Scarlet Gospels, and Hellraiser, The Toll, and then the 10 Hellraiser nine or 10 Hellraiser films. There's 10. Yes. 10 Hellraiser films. So um, they are from a religious sect in hell known as the Order of the Gash. 
uh, describing themselves as explorers in the further regions of experience uh, and granting sadomasochistic pleasures to those who call upon them. Um, author David McWilliam noted that the Cenobites are described in more explicitly sexual terms in the book compared with their descriptions in the film adaptations. Julia, played by Claire Higgins, was Barker's choice to carry the series as its main antagonist after Hellbound, um, reducing the Cenobites to a background role. So, however, fans very much rallied around Pinhead, as you mentioned, as the breakout character, and Higgins declined to return to the series. So I think that's why we got the films that we did. And then in uh, the Ashgate Encyclopedia of Literary and Cinematic Monsters, uh, Macmillan wrote that the Cenobites provide continuity across the series as the stories become increasingly standalone in nature. So that was kind of interesting. But as far as production on the film went, um, (laughs) uh, I think that this was actually the directorial debut for Barker. Yeah. um, And he he really did everything for it. He, um, yeah. Oh, there's tales there. You're getting into them. Okay. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Let, yeah. Ooh, you yeah. might have, you'll probably have lots of anecdotes. I'm just going through like the hard facts, but Hellraiser was filmed at the end of 1986 and was set to be made in seven weeks, but was extended over a nine to 10 week period by New World Cinema. And the film was originally made under the working title of Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave, which would have been such a cool title. I just, I kind of love that personally. So um, Barker had also wanted to call the film Hellbound, but producer Christopher Figg suggested Hellraiser instead. So Barker spoke fondly in the Hellraiser Chronicles about the filming, stating that his memories of production were of um, unalloyed fondness and the cast treated uh, many ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving at at the time of filming Hellraiser. So Barker had admitted his own lack of knowledge on filmmaking, stating that um, he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens and things like that. If you'd shown him a plate of spaghetti and said that was a lens he might have believed you or something like that so (laughs) after filming new world cinema convinced barker to relocate the story to the united states which required overdubbing to remove some of the british accents yeah and that's part of that's one of the big knocks against it Mm -hmm. there's a lot of weird things like that and so people kind of are like what the hell blah 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 you know about the 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 dubs and the the strange like some of the locations are are a bit strange and things like that. So yeah, that's something that um, kind of plagued him. But, you know, if I'm not mistaken, also, he wasn't first chosen to direct it. He was going to um, just kind of, you know, hand it over to someone else to direct. And they had a problem finding someone to direct it in a way that kind of lived out the vision. So he ended up taking the director. So again, you know, thrust upon him kind of thing, but, uh, you know, having the the first entrance, you know, the first installment um, directed by the man who wrote it, I think that that gave us the best version of the film we were going to get. So it's, I'm glad it worked out that way. But yeah, again, that kind of explains why he was so such a rube as far as, you know, the, the common things about directing. But what's really interesting is to hear people that worked with him on the film talk about the experience because no one, you know, <clears throat> While they all note the fact that he was a new director, um, they they also don't really knock him for it because they could see the um, the artist in him basically, and so folks like Ashley Lawrence, who who um, you know uh, 
played the 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 lead uh the final girl in the film she speaks very fondly of working with clive barker because she just was able to to work with him in a way that was just uh, in her words a pure art experience kind of thing because that's what they were getting they weren't getting someone who was used to directing hollywood actors and things like that they were getting someone who had a very unique vision for a very unique specific project and so it made for a really interesting experience for those involved which is really fucking cool considering you know how hollywood usually goes with things and it's no we got to get you know there's not a lot of opportunities like that in hollywood that turn out the way hellraiser has now you know say what you want about the sequels um it's stood the test of time as a franchise yeah it definitely has and i think you know despite its issues there's a lot of it's just as a film it's fantastic and it's so it's extreme. It's very fresh. It's very unique, has a very different perspective than a lot of other things that were coming out during that time period. Totally. And, you know, that's that's down to the the, you know, the situation that went into making it. I, I think that anybody else directing this first film, you don't get the same movie. So, well, let's walk through the plot because this will be we'll dig in and see what else. What other anecdotes you can pull out of here for us? It starts somewhere in Morocco and an impulsive and violent uh, man named Frank Cotton, who's played by Sean Chapman, as we mentioned, purchases an antique puzzle box from a dealer. Um, and this is the box. Uh, and remind us the name of the box. It's the lament configuration. So um, back at his house in London, England, Frank solves the puzzle box and um, hooked chains immediately fly out of the box, tear into his flesh. Demons called Cenobites from another realm appear to inspect his remains. Their leader, Pinhead, who's played by Doug Bradley, picks up the box and twists it back into its original shape. And the room also returns to normal so honestly it's funny to me because like why not just have this in london or britain or whatever like the the dubbing thing is so strange to me so uh frank's brother larry like we said played by andrew robinson um later moves into frank's abandoned house with his second wife julia who's played by claire higgins and who previously had an affair with frank like literally right after her and larry got married (laughs) yeah Um, they assume that Frank is off on one of his like nefarious adventures for whatever reason he's not there I guess he travels a lot Um, at first I thought that maybe he had died and they had inherited the house I I don't you know the the I have to admit, I, I'm drawing a blank on how they end up in the home. I know they plan to fix it up and and get rid of it, but I think it's a family home. If I'm not mistaken, it's not necessarily Frank's. Okay, so it doesn't, it's not, the, the deed isn't in Frank's name or whatever. Yeah, it's more like Frank was kind of <laughs> crashing there, but it's a family right. home. And so they're going to, you know, they're going to fix it up, save some money. He was like squatting there. He wasn't yeah. just like crashing. It's, it's very odd. Well, because when they eventually stumble across his mattress and stuff, it's very much like squats. Style. He's got yeah. like a mattress with like a t-shirt and some pol- some Polaroids, and that's like all of his belongings that were left there. So it's it's a weird scene there. It's I'm, a drifter. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a strange scene there. That I think that's probably part of why I can't really recall what what the circumstances are because it's kind of like yeah, don't worry about it. I don't know. Frank lived in the attic on a mattress, whatever. Anyway, you know, and like it's they moved good. on. Yeah, and they um, just got. I wouldn't the story have, like on. if I hadn't have found the Polaroids, I wouldn't have assumed it was Frank's stuff because you think he'd be in one of the bedrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Larry's teenage daughter, or I guess maybe she's going into college, Kirsty Cotton, played by Ashley Lawrence, Matt's favorite final girl. 
Yes. Of all time. Um, <laughs> chooses not to live with her stepmother and moves into her own place. So after cutting his hand on a nail while moving a mattress, Larry goes upstairs to the room where Frank was killed and his blood falls on the floor and then it mysteriously disappears through the floorboards. Actually, this effect was really, really cool. And it, I think it's so much more than that uh description yeah <laughs> but um frank's soul uses this blood as nourishment to like partially regenerate his body because um what we find is i don't know like maybe there's still some residual interdimensional gateway left over in between the floorboards or something um because his body starts to come back like up through the floor yeah and you know one of the cool things about this is it's all done practical um <clears throat> yes that's so, what, oh my that's why it terrified me because it just looks so real yeah well and and like certain things like the blood being soaked into the floor it, it, they knew that they couldn't just let the blood eventually soak through the floor and all that because it would leave residue and things like that they really wanted to give the impression that the the house and and, and the energy stored there somehow was um absorbing the blood like like again like nourishment like eating it you know essentially so um what they ended up doing was they pumped blood through the floor and then they filmed it and played it in reverse so that it seemed to be soaking into the floor without any residue left behind so it's just one of those neat little tricks where you're like man that's so cool how that looks because you get the you don't get the impression like oh did it soak into the floor like because wood is porous or did the the floor no it very clearly is consumed by the home because it's shot in reverse so there's no residue of the blood every drop is used and harvested in a way so it's neat it's i i i always thought that was a pretty neat trick and then like weird skeletal frank is a whole other puppet yeah. thing that <laughs> Again, it's practical, but yeah, crazy as well. The evolution of Frank, like coming back to life or becoming whole again is really, really cool. Um, and it's also really disgusting. <laughs> so uh, a lot of gore in this film. But uh, later, Frank uh, convinces Julia to help restore him to his full physical form. So. Julia succumbs to Frank's um, charms, I guess, even as an yeah. undead man. Which is weird. There's a lot of skinless Frank kissing Julia and stuff. It's just a really, yeah, it's a lot. Well, uncomfortable. Um, and <laughs> Julia, <laughs> so she agrees to help him by seducing men and luring them up to the empty attic where Frank is hiding and after julia murders them frank drains them of their blood which allows him to further regenerate his body it's like some really cool kills super disgusting the effects of like the body draining like basically until they're just like a fleshy husk yeah but this is also where some of the uh continuity discredit you know discrepancy errors come up because like you see julia in like a very very obviously english pub you know what i mean they're like but this is oh, america yeah. this is an american english pub and you're like they're they're in this like this super, is yeah it, it very <laughs> obviously is overseas and then they're like but no this is, to this is totally america and she brings home all british guys and stuff like you know it's just yeah it's it's that's one of the another one of the strange things where like she leaves the house and she goes down to the local bar and it's an English pub and and she brings home dudes you know businessmen and shit that are you know kind of gross in their own way and and 
that's another thing that I found interesting. She didn't, it, at least in this one, in the second one, she's more of a villain, Julia, right? But in this one, um, she didn't bring home guys that you felt too much compassion for, which I think was an interesting thing. There was a lot of like scummy guys cheating on their wives and stuff that she brought home. And um, I just always see those decisions and those those little bits that they put in there about that. I, I just see that as interesting because it, it, it makes it so that you're not too compassionate. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to make you feel too compassionate for these people, but by the same note, you, they want you to realize that this is very wrong. What's going on, obviously, you know? So. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to call her like a feminist vigilante or anything, but, um, definitely. <laughs> She's not bringing home grade eight, like sweethearts, yeah. you know, they're to not nice the dudes. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> um, Frank actually tells Julia about the puzzle box, um, which he still has in his possession and explains that by reclaiming his body, he's broken his deal with the Cenobites, um, basically to bring him back to the land of torturous pleasure. Well now, and this is uh, again, one of the interesting things about <clears throat> the lore of, you know, Hellraiser and all that, the idea is there's no escaping the Cenobites, right? That's, that's something that they hammer on you throughout this whole thing. Yet in this movie, twice people escape the Cenobites and it's the entire kind of, you know, the narrative driver for the whole film, because by Frank escaping the Cenobites, that motivates, uh, Kirsty later to, um, you know, call them back and to negotiate her own escape from the Cenobites. Many times. 
Yes. He escaped you! Nobody escapes us. He did, I seen him, I seen him! Impossible! He's alive! Supposing he had escaped us, what has that to do with you? Confess himself. Then maybe, maybe. But if you need us, we'll tear your soul apart. So, you know, and that that motivates the act. the 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 entire action of the second film is. Kirsty, then, you know, the Cenobites still want a piece of Kirsty because she escaped them by giving up Frank, you know. So it's like this, it's a really interesting thing because it's this this runaround where they keep telling you no one gets away from the Cenobites. Yeah, we just keep watching people get away from the Cenobites, which, you know, again, it, it, it drives the entire narrative of the first two films, but that's the idea here, which is, I think is pretty cool. You know, for whatever reason, Frank's um, do no good kind of, you know, life, um, it left a lot of residual energy and, and, um, that resi residual energy was able to be sparked again by a catalyst in this case being blood. Then the rest of it's a lot of negotiating with pinhead and, and that, that kind of gives pinhead a certain level of, um, activity of a more active role in all of this. than uh, if I'm not mistaken, then the book really kind of portrays the book just he he's just a torturer if i'm not mistaken and he's he's a really very much just a tool of the the system at play here whereas in, in the first two films uh, the fact that anybody can negotiate with pinhead makes him a much more active part in the action of the first two films which is cool long tangent there sorry about that kirsty uh eventually catches julia bringing a strange man home and sneaks into the house to investigate in the attic julia bludgeons the man allowing frank to feast on his body kirsty approaches the attic unaware of what's happening with inside suddenly the bloody man stumbles out of the attic soon followed by the skinless frank who confronts kirsty um this is a really fun scene but before frank can grab her kirsty seizes the puzzle box when she realizes it holds value for Frank, she throws it out the window and escapes from the house, picking up the box off the ground as she, like, flees into the street. Um, a disoriented Kirsty collapses in the street and awakens in the hospital. She tells herself it was all a terrible dream until the doctors hand her the puzzle box. Kirsty begins to play with it. This is a really fun scene. She begins to play with the puzzle box and it uh, tricks her into solving it. Um, she comes just the way that she's playing with it. She's very obviously like, it seems like everything else falls away and she's just like mesmerized by it. So, um, and I think maybe that's part of the box itself and it's intrigue yeah. for people. I'm not sure everyone that messes with the box knows what it's for, but, um, the walls of her hospital room open a dimensional door and Kirsty encounters the Cenobites. So this is where we see, um, Pinhead and two other, I think we see two other Cenobites in this scene. Pinhead tells Kirsty that she has summoned them and therefore they must take her to hell. She begs them to spare her, offering to lead them to Frank in exchange for her freedom. And the Cenobites warn her against attempting deception with Pinhead uttering his famous line, 
will tear your soul apart. Um, there's also other lines in this scene that are super fun that we absolutely love, right, Matt? Because I know oh. there's one you quoted to me previously. Absolutely. Uh, the, there's so many good, you know, and and <clears throat> I find myself sometimes tripping up uh, in in which film specifically the line is from, but if I'm not mistaken, the line "No tears, girl, it's a waste of good suffering." That's from yeah, here, it's in this one, <laughs> which is which is pretty it's a much a great line, and you really turned me on to it, and I was like, man, that really is a good line. So that now it is sticks like with me ultimate, everywhere I go. Yeah, that is the ultimate line. No tears is a waste of good suffering. Um, we'll tear your soul apart. You open the box, we came. You know, there's th- a lot of that. Like there's. There isn't a moment that Pinhead and the Cenobites are on screen in this movie where it's not like, oh, God damn, man. You know, like it's not filled with those great lines, those great moments. So naturally, you know, um, I, th- I think it's pretty obvious when you watch the film why everybody was more amused with the Cenobites than they were with like Julia and Frank. They're they're interesting characters, don't get me wrong, but the Cenobites are really like, what you know, you see Butterball and the female Ch- Cenobite and Chatterer and, and Pinhead and they're in these crazy clothes and they do these crazy things and they say this crazy shit and it's like every scene they're in, you're just like, good God, man, they're cool, you know, like... I, I spent a long time of my life watching like just for the Cenobite scenes. So yeah, you know, um, but no tears. It's a waste of good suffering is, is just, it's so fucked up, but it's so amazing at the same time. So yeah. Uh, Kirsty escapes the hospital at this point and races back to her father's home to warn him about Frank. Larry informs Kirsty that Frank has been taken care of and Julia shows Kirsty, uh, bloody body in the attic now obviously we know as we're watching that julia has killed killed larry um and frank is hiding inside of larry's skin at mm-hmm. this point um and i i think kirsty realizes it maybe she's looking at him and sees part of his reflection i think in a mirror maybe and she sees like the 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 line on behind his ear yeah. Where the skin is attached. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, he's like filling with his it's rough. And then there's these other lines that Frank has to Kirsty that are so they just give me the heebie jeebies and gross me out. Um I think I think he says like come to daddy or something like that. Yep. 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 yep <laughs> um, but uh yeah, so she she realizes that Frank is uh in her like her dad is dead. Um, but Frank attacks Kirsty, accidentally stabbing Julia in the process, and then Frank drains Julia of her blood in this scene. So Julia's dead now, um, but nourishes himself. So really he doesn't he never he like like Matt was saying before, um he was done with Julia like way before any of this ever occurred. She didn't do it for him anymore in terms of being exciting so um she was just a means to an end for him and he goes to the attic where kirsty is hiding kirsty uh is crying and accusing frank of murdering her father doesn't really need to accuse him it's pretty obvious he's wearing a dad suit um frank (laughs) (laughs) uh frank is like totally unrepentant about the whole thing telling kirsty her father was already dead inside i guess because he was just like a less exciting version of Frank, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah you had to the compare the two. Frank. Yeah, yeah. He's the safe Frank. Uh, besides, it was inevitable. Um, and having heard Frank's confession, the Cenobites appear because now he's done murder. 
<laughs> so um because i think before that even though he drained those guys of blood he wasn't the one that murdered them yeah it was julia Frank tries to kill Kirsty for setting him up, but a hooked chain, this is like such an intense scene, a hooked chain flies through the air and snares his hand, pulling him back into the room. Dozens of these chains fly through the air and hook themselves into his flesh as he screams in agony and hold him transfixed like a fly in a spider's web. He screams, uh, like the screams subside, and looking at Kirsty, he says, Somebody was it him that says this? Jesus wept before the chains tear him oh, yeah. apart. Yeah, his his um, face, his skin suit. It's is... like really. This is one of the scariest. Like it's scarier to me than Frank in a skin suit in yeah. like a bloody skin suit. Um, yeah, his which face actually, is all flat with it, the hooks and stuff. Yeah, the actor wore. Yeah. Um, during that whole time period, uh, he there's like scenes that were left in the film, apparently, when the actor that played Frank was like taking a smoke break because Barker thought it was funny because <laughs> uh, he would just hang out in the skin suit <laughs> mm -hmm. around in between takes. So Kirsty runs through the house eager to escape, but the Cenobites want her as well. So they're the interesting thing about this is essentially like she did try some deception, I think, but like. I think they're going back on their deal more than she was. Well, they wanted Frank, right? Because yeah, <clears throat> more so than the wholesome in air quotes, uh, Kirsty. They wanted Frank <laughs> because Frank was really the soul that they, you know, the soul that seeked them out and opened the box and, and all of that. They really wanted Frank. Um, yeah. You know, Frank's existence <clears throat> kind of in, in to the Cenobites, Frank's existence was an affront to everything that they stand for and everything that they do. And so that's where you get lines like your suffering will be legendary even in hell and things like that, because they have a bit of a grudge with Frank because, you know, you don't you don't beat the Cenobites. So at this point, uh, Kirsty finds the puzzle box, which is uh, just like clutched in the hands of Julia's corpse. And one by one, she banishes the Cenobites back to their realm by reversing the solution to the puzzle box. So afterwards, Kirsty tries to burn the box in a fire outdoors, but a strange man appears and picks it out of the flames as the man is consumed by the flames he transforms into a winged skeletal creature that flies away into the night uh which i never quite exactly understood but in the final scene the box is shown in the hands of the merchant who originally sold it to frank asking this uh another prospective customer um what's your pleasure sir so i'm like did did the box fly back did the man turn into a winged creature and fly the box back to the original seller is, I mean, is this yeah. original seller some kind of Demon worshiper. I don't know what's I think, going on. Uh, I think you need to to uh, suspend some disbelief there and just why not yeah. have a winged beast in it at some I point? I thought it. So <laughs> I liked the scene a lot, but then I felt like this was the one moment where the special effects didn't do it for me. Yeah, the, the yeah. winged creature. Yeah, agree. Um, after all of those fantastic practical effects throughout the film, then we had to do a little bit of. Um, like non-practical effects yeah, which yeah. of the 80s which looked a little cheesy yeah yeah you know um, um, and there's a lot of deaths in this film a lot of people that die there's a good amount of people that died there's also a good amount of like you know kind of lingering on the the death you know and and what i mean by that is like you know Frank crawling around like an attic gremlin for most of this movie is definitely some <laughs> of the like the, that's where the gore is really like really yeah. lives you know um 
but also like you know the drained corpses that they're they're pretty well put together they look like uh you know um well literally like drains they're sunken raisins of you know fragile ash almost they look like dust creatures which is pretty cool um the cenobites themselves are are you know kind of gore in their own way because they all have you know skin torn exposed skin nails and head you know uh open throats and and things like that so there's a good amount of gore just in the characters of the cenobites but you know uh one of the things i i, I th- the thing that i think is pretty neat about this film is is the idea that you know for all the drumming up of like, check out Pinhead, look at this Pinhead, look at Pinhead, look at Pinhead. They show them just enough where, as I had said earlier, you know, every scene they're in is full of something gory, some some really amazing lines, some really great comments, some really great effects. And and everything, every scene they're in is done so well that they're ne- they never hang out on screen too much. So, you know, as much as they're they're not in the film as much as you would you you might think when you you know when when you were a youngster in the 80s whatever going to grab the vhs from the rental store you know the box has them on it so you're like yeah we're just gonna get a whole bunch of these people and they're not in it even until not really in it until halfway through the film um the scenes that they are in every single one of them serves a purpose and every single one of them is so strong that you actually do feel like you're not seeing a lot of them in the film so yeah, it's a and little bit of that. That's if you're a youngster that's our age. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, a VHS. right. Um, huge, but, yeah, huge caveat yeah, there. Like, you have to be old now. But <laughs> you got to be old now. But, so um, in a way that kind of leads to that like Jaws thing of like, you know, show it less. And and so, you know, yeah. because as much as they're they're not in it like to the the extent of like a Jaws, you know, where they're they're barely in the, the film, they do really do a good job of only showing them when it makes total sense and when it when it's going to be a home run of a scene there's no jump scares in this film no yeah not a one it's not cheap right it's not trying to just like get that one last final you know scare out of you where you jump out of your seat it's it's very consistent throughout and um the critical response for the film was actually pretty good um at least in the uk um one reviewer referred to it as bark barker's dazzling debut and another said it creates such an atmosphere of dread that the astonishing set pieces simply denote it in a chain reaction of cumulative intensity um and then other people had called it a seriously intelligent and disturbing horror film so i think that like overall it had a pretty good response and other people said it wasn't it was had a more serious tone as a horror film than other films of the era like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or Evil Dead that were a little more horror comedy. Like they were still very scary, but they they started to move into the comedy realm a little bit um, with especially the um, creatures in the film. <laughs> creatures or monsters or villains. So um, Rotten Tomatoes wise, if people absolutely need to know, it's 73% fresh and it made... Um, decent amount of money at the box office i think it was in total about 14.5 million dollars no you know i mean here's the thing with a movie like this though um the people who love hellraiser love it rabidly and the people who don't love it 
they, they, you know, I've heard it referred to as like C grade horror and all these other things. And, you know, they, they have a tendency to kind of crap on it. So I, I, I think it's a good example of the kind of horror film that really fits a certain group. And, um, you know, there's a lot of like extreme polarity there. You're like either a big fan of Hellraiser and, oh yeah, you love, you know, telling your friends, oh that, yeah, Jesus wept. Yeah. Oh, such a great movie, you know, but and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's not a lot of people who are just like, okay with it. They're like, yeah, sorry, that's a pretty good horror movie. It's like people who love it or people who are like, eh, you know, and could totally live without it. And I think that's fine. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people that thinks that like, we all got to agree on these things. Um, oh, definitely not. Cause I don't like hereditary and everybody else does. Yeah. There you <laughs> so, go. Right. <laughs> that's my big one is like, yeah, I'm an anti-hereditary, uh, not anti but i was just like i didn't like it other people like it i can appreciate that they liked it and um if they want to keep trying to convince me why i'm wrong that's fine right oh <laughs> so. I, I have the same feelings about midsummer believe me and i get attacked all yeah the time. where i'm the opposite where i actually really enjoyed midsummer so <laughs> um it's just you know to each their own and and what they enjoy so here's the thing uh, about a horror film that has that kind of reaction obviously they're doing more to um you know, not try to straddle any lines, you know what I mean? Like they're carving out what's theirs, they're unique. And, you know, <clears throat> anytime you, you are as unique of a horror film as Hellraiser is, you're bound to have people who love it and people who just could really live without it. Um, you're not going to be that like across the board kind of sensation in a, in a genre by being so kind of in, in a lot of ways, bold and, and different. And Hellraiser is definitely a bold and different film. So, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's like any other statement you make when you make such a strong statement, you're going to have fans and detractors and that's just how it goes. So I think that speaks to you know, the film in, in, in the sense that at least they did something more, something unique. Yeah. There's no summer camps. There's no babysitters. You know <laughs> what I mean? And that's, that's important. And, and I think that we got a, a pretty stellar final girl in this because, uh, Ashley Lawrence, the Kirsty character, she's a, a pretty particular, uh, kind of final girl. She's doesn't have any real interest in this entire runaround. She, you know, She's not the, um, you know, she's not sought after by the Cenobites for the entire film. She stumbles upon them. Basically, she's thrust into this situation and, you know, does what she can to punish the man who killed her father and um, to make yeah. sure that he gets what he deserves. And so it's, I don't know, it's an interesting final girl kind of recipe there because she doesn't she's not you know chased by the killer till the very bitter end she kind of games the system to um to to get uh frank the punishment that he deserves from the cenobites so again the cenobites being like the hand of retribution and all that for the things that you do uh it, it's kind of interesting and and it's kind of similar to um it kind of plays into that that great another great line from Pinhead when he says, you know, demons to some, angels to others. Um, you know, he's referring to the idea of um, people who seek pain finding them as angels, but they're demons to some, angels to others, as in, in a lot of ways because they end up being the hand of Kirsty in the retribution and the, you know, getting ve revenge on, uh, you know, Uncle Frank, who's a piece of shit and killed her father, so he could have his skin. So like right. you said, dad yeah. suit.
So the dad suit. Yeah. Um, so this I did pull up some fun facts uh, from a couple different sources. So um, we have a few from the Spooky Isles in an article by Kaylee Marie Edwards. And then I have a few more from Mental Floss, where I always get a lot of fun stuff from uh, by Garen Pernia. So we're going to like run run through some of these. You may know some of them already. Um, a lot of them will probably be fresh for me. So apparently there's a maggot wrangler that was required yeah. for this film. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that was a profession, but a maggot wrangler was needed on set, particularly for the scene in which maggots cascade out of the mouth of a corpse and pour down Kirstie's top. There always <laughs> has to be. I forgot about that. There always has actually. to be a bug wrangler, like in Creep oh, Show. They had the cockroach wranglers for all the roaches in the "They're Creeping Up on You" episode or installment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's always a bug wrangler, but I think it's pretty great that somebody's job was to like look after the maggots, you know? Yeah. Make sure they don't go turn it into flies. I, I just, I, I wonder about that. Like that, that had to be a one day shoot because, you know, by the next day you just had flies. So did you then become fly wrangler or did you just let them free? Like how did that, but yeah, real maggots, a lot of that, um, practical stuff again, you know, uh, Tom Savini talks about it best when he says, you know, the best way to make something fake look real is to do as much real as possible, you know? And some of the movie's most famous and quotable lines were actually improvised. So, uh, Frank's line, enough of this cat and mouse shit was ad-libbed. And he also changed his final line from the original scripted fuck off to Jesus wept. Um, and I assume it was because of the position that he was in at the time of the scene. Um, and then in America, the movie got an R rating, uh, despite several like very explicit scenes and shots being cut from the finished movie, because there were a lot of deleted scenes from the film um, that apparently were just like way too over the top in terms of gore and stuff. So if you're looking for those, I suggest you probably pick up like the Blu-ray or the 4K HD version of the film. There was actually a new release for Blu-ray uh, for the 30th anniversary of the film that people can check out. So, um, but to prepare for his first stab at directing, Barker tried to check um, a book on directing out of his local library, apparently. <laughs> However, there were only two big books on directing and both of them were checked out at the time. So despite his inexperience, Barker succeeded in debuting not only one of the most popular British horror films of all time, but um, he launched a really successful horror movie franchise. So good on you, Clive Barker. And Clive Barker, like he's a fantastic writer. Uh, One of the things though that you haven't touched on just yet that I wanted to bring up, you you mentioned some deleted scenes and and how there was a lot of things cut. There's actually a cool anecdote that kind of is more about Hellraiser. Well, not kind of. It is more about Hellraiser 2, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Um, But it's one of the things I always find interesting in in Hellraiser lore is there's an image that was on the film boxes and everything, and it's a pretty well-known image for Hellraiser fans, and that's of like the Dr. Pinhead. And it's Pinhead and the female Cenobite in Scrubs. Uh, with like, you know, doctor masks and hair things and, you know, like that kind of stuff in a, a hospital. And it appears on the back of, I think it's on the back of the VHS copy of Hellraiser 2. Um, it's, I mean, any Hellraiser fan is crazy about this image because it's a really cool looking image, really cool blue lighting and seeing them dressed up as, you know, 
the hospital staff is kind of neat. Um, it's not in any of the films. It's a deleted scene from um, Hellraiser 2 that the the image, again, the scene was deleted because the scene didn't work and didn't really fit with the theme of the film. But the image is just such a goddamn cool picture that they were like, we're putting it on the box anyway. Fuck it. This is a cool looking picture. And one of the things I love about that is all the Hellraiser fans have this weird false memory of pinhead dr pinhead as like a scene and it's not a scene it's because it it lives like everywhere when you talk about hellraiser especially nowadays when you know you google hellraiser of any kind you find this image of dr pinhead but it's not from any of the films so there's a lot of folks out there who are just you know big fans of the image that are that have this like reversed screwy memory of that scene. And it's like, well, that scene doesn't actually exist anywhere because they just, they shot it. It didn't work. And, but they were like, but that looks pretty fucking cool. So let's put it on the movie box. And so now we all have this, I guess that's I like, like a, that happens a lot with, um, different shoots and media they'll yeah. still end up out there. Even sometimes they end up in the trailers and then you watch the film and the scene and that little piece from the trailer isn't there yeah exactly uh, there's several films i've gone into being like oh that looks really cool and then i watched the movie and that thing that i thought was so neat from the trailer isn't even in the film but there's like there, there's whole people that are like yeah and when they're when they put on the scrubs and you're like that never happens you know <laughs> but it's just this this memory that you know because it's such a, a crazy image i've seen tattoos of dr pinhead and like everything else and That's it's like just so phenomenal <laughs> I, I think it's great because it, it's really interesting you know the idea of like sometimes cool shit doesn't make the final cut i guess you know and it's like that they realized how cool it was to see them dressed up like that but it didn't really make make sense in the film but they used it anyway so it's just it's neat uh so apparently uh there, there's a couple other there's a lot of things to go through just in terms of like just an anecdotal facts um so um Two of the four Cenobites, the Chatterer and Butterball, originally had dialogue apparently in the film, but the prosthetics that they used for the costumes made it impossible for the actors to speak audibly. So their lines were given to the Deep Throat character, who was later renamed as the female Cenobite because Deep Throat was deemed too sexual. <laughs> um uh, and then Pinhead as well got some of the lines. So the extra lines fleshed out pinhead as a character transforming him from just a regular monster and set him apart as the leader of the cenobites so it's interesting how that all went down but so uh i know a lot of people are familiar with the fact that the film was originally named after the novella and we had mentioned the other name the sadomasochist name that they had wanted to use apparently they had also considered what a woman will do for a good fuck as a potential <laughs> title for this film <laughs> As a working, Where it was like a working title while yeah. they were shooting it. I was like, oh, Clive. Yeah. yeah. Some <laughs> that hits, would never some have worked. That <laughs> right. would never have worked. Some um, hits, some misses. Yeah. And then the aesthetic design of the Cenobites was inspired by um, S&M, punk rock, and most famously the Catholic Church. So costume designer Jane uh, Wild Goose wasn't given specific design instructions, but instead prompts such as repulsive glamour um and she encapsulated the three main costume themes perfectly i think for pinhead and um uh, pinhead was apparently originally named the priest yeah uh it was the audience that named him pinhead i think he's so. i think he's credited 
uh, in the film as Pinhead, too, at that point. It says the audience applied the name Pinhead to Bradley's character, and then the name actually irritated Barker profusely. Oh, see, that's interesting. That's a new one for me, too. Yeah, and I I think I had read something about that before, but then he just, from now on, he's always going to be pin, like, you just can't, he's pinhead. Yeah, there's no way around Um, it now, so as much as it irritated (laughs) him, you know, I I get that and I understand, but, you know, sometimes, it's kind of like what we say about video games, you can design the game all you want, until it's in the hands of the players, they kind of then take take mm-hmm. the reins on it you know but yeah it's the same idea you know nobody was going to because I, if i'm not mistaken and i'm looking now to ch- try and verify but if i'm not mistaken even when you oh no lead cenobite is all they called him in the credits i was gonna yeah. say yeah I, I thought even in the credits he was listed as pinhead at this point maybe that would be like an i think after we all fact. think that yeah like because it's, it's the same thing with the the picture on the back of the that's cover right. of exactly Hellraiser <laughs> It's, it's, we've um, convinced ourselves he's pinhead and he'll, yeah. let, he'll forever be It's just like how your mind gravitates toward the things you remember that were things that you made up. It's similar to the scene in Psycho where um, Janet Lee's character is murdered. Uh, you never actually see the weapon ever pierce Lee's flesh, but people say, oh, it was so bloody and gory when you were getting stabbed, but you never actually see her getting stabbed at all. Another notorious example of that is Texas Chainsaw. People talk about the hook scene being, oh, you see the hook in her back and there's blood and and there's like no blood in that scene, you know, which is... No, you see her go on to it, but you don't actually see anything else. And you don't even see the hook enter the skin. You see the hook behind her, then you see from the front, you know what I mean? So it's like, Mm -hmm. but you know, your imagination fills, when a film is done well, at least. It fills the gaps in, in, in perfect ways as intended, I think too. Yeah. Um, But that's how filmmakers also can get around some of the ratings issues. Yep. Right. Yep. By not having blood, the less blood you have, the less gory or a film apparently technically is, um, especially with use of the color red, because yep. um, that came up in From Dust Till Dawn. All the blood is not red. Um, so they were able to get a better rating. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so apparently the origins of Pinhead came from a 1973 play. That's what they say in Mental Floss in this article here. So before Doug Bradley uttered the catchphrase, we'll tear your soul apart, Clive Barker directed him in a 1973 play called Hunters in the Snow, in which Bradley played the Dutchman, a torturer who would become the basis for Pinhead. Hey, that's pretty interesting. Um, which is cool. I was like, oh, okay. So this was kind of an idea that had been going for a long time. So um, Barker's mid-1980s short story, The Forbidden, which was adapted into Candyman from his Books of Blood series, um, featured the first incarnation of Pinhead's nails. Uh, One image, uh, it says, one image I remember very strongly from The Forbidden was that Clive had built what he called his nail board which was basically a block of wood, which he'd squared off. And then he'd banged six inch nails in at the intersections of the squares. Uh, Bradley said, of course, when I saw the first illustrations for Pinhead, it rang a bell with me. And here was Clive putting the ideas that he'd been playing around with the nail board in the forbidden. Um, So I think that's cool. It's like it was 10 to 15 years later and he was still playing around with those ideas. Um, And then he had now taken that image and put it all over my face. (laughs) That's amazing. uh, It's great. Uh, Well, apparently Pinhead also was not supposed to be on the poster for the film. 
No, yeah, that that one I know about. Yeah. Yeah, so this one I I do not know about, but Bradley said, and this is Doug Bradley who played Pinhead, said the filmmakers wanted Skinned Frank to be on the poster, but the studio said no to the grotesque imagery, um, which like I can kind of understand that. So Pinhead was used on the poster instead. Uh, maybe that came from Clive because what we get in that image of Pinhead with the box is the heart of the Hellraiser mythology. Um, so Bradley said, if you put the engineer or the skinned man on the poster, it's an amazing image, but it's just an image and it could come from any movie. So Bradley thought using Pinhead's face made more sense. The big success of Pinhead is because the image is so original and really startling. And it's just an incredible image that to look at and um, made a big difference in terms of the public's perception of the movie. That's what Bradley had said anyway. Yeah. Um, so no one knew that Doug Bradley was Pinhead, though. <laughs> they loved running so, that. Yeah. Yeah. Bradley's Pinhead uh, mug was everywhere on covers of magazines and on movie posters and oh, yeah. in uh, Matt's bathroom. That's right. And <laughs> seven-year-old Matt's was, bathroom was heavily featured. Um, and so Bradley said that those were. Um, he, he said it was great to be so heavily featured, but there was no way to prove to anyone that it was actually me. And he said those were those who were following Hellraiser at the time uh, were wondering where the guy with the pins was. Well, I can tell you where I was. I was sitting at some home at, at home in England watching it all happen from the sidelines. <laughs> so, nobody knew it was him. I mean, they did a really good job of like you can tell who he is when he when the makeup's off and everything. Yeah. Mental Floss says it's really a love story. And I'm like, is it though? Uh, yeah, I don't I know don't about that so. one. Yeah. <laughs> they say Julia is forced to bring men back to her house and murder them for Frank so that he can replenish his flesh. Barker looked at Hellraiser as more of a love story with Julia committing these heinous acts in the name of love, not just to be brutal for no reason. So that's Julia's motivation, but it's definitely not Frank's. Right. It's definitely not Frank's. And it has, it's such a small part of the plot. You know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I find that odd. But maybe, you know, if Clive Barker had his his druthers, as they say, to to make Julia <laughs> the main villain, really, you know, maybe there's a whole nother film there. You know, these things kind of grow their own legs in in the process. And I think that a lot of times when you talk to when you hear from the people who make these films, uh, write them, direct them, star in them, you you hear these like lingering bits of because they have this other knowledge we talked a, a little bit about like knowledge bias and, and memory bias and things like that um you know so they remember the parts of the story where julia was really the driving force behind it but really she kind of takes a secondary supporting role in hellraiser and i think that the, the notion that Barker had set out to make her more of the the primary kind of uh, character in, in this story uh, is part of why he, he clings to those love story elements and Julia's motivations. Because really, as a viewer, you're kind of more focused on Frank's motivations and then later Kirstie's and, and all of that. So And there's not really much of a story without Frank, you know, and, and I get that. Julia's love for Frank is why these things happen. But I think that when you see it on the screen in the film, it's, it just becomes, well, yeah, that's why she's doing these things. But like, he's a, 
he's a real piece of work and this other real piece of work pinhead is coming for him and and like there's so many other you know elements to it i guess but i mean without a doubt when you put the two together uh hellraiser and then hellbound uh hellraiser 2 um they really kind of like they that you start to see more of that overall arc it's just a little bit disjointed because again clive barker didn't do hellraiser 2 so also apparently barker's grandfather inspired the puzzle box so um when a person twists the box known as the lament configuration it summons the cenobites from the gates of hell into the individual's world um and Barker told Wired that he wanted to have access to hell in the book and in the first movie and explored by something rather different than drawing a circle on the floor with like magical symbols around it. So um, that seemed really stale. So Barker explained um, his grandfather was a cook on a ship and brought back a puzzle box from the Far East. So when he went back to the problem of how to open the doors to hell, the idea of using the puzzle box. Um, was really interesting to him. So I think that's really cool. I, I really like the puzzle box a- aspect to it. It's a key, essentially. Right? Yeah. So it's uh, um, it's the portal. It's very the, cool. The summoning circle without having the summoning circle. So yeah. And the cool thing about that is um, like with the summoning circle, you can draw that anywhere at any time. Right. But with this box, like you have to have it in your possession. It's not. So the way that it can circulate around the world is way more interesting to me than someone just drawing your average well portal. <laughs> not only that but the idea the notion that you would need to seek this thing out you're not going to stumble upon it i mean yeah i, I suppose in, by chance you could but um for for the most part people aren't going to just stumble upon this somewhere it's something that they seek out so it's kind of like they're and this is such a terrible way to phrase it but they're asking for the trouble that they find they're seeking the trouble that they find so again that's why you know going back to some of the things i said earlier in the cast um you know the interesting side of this is these are pleasure seekers pain seekers these are thrill seekers these are people that live to that that out there excess um and that's how they end up coming across the box in the first place so it's kind of like you know the line again you open the box we came that's you know you're they're they're playing every character that opens that puzzle box is playing with fire in some way and um they're you know the and the the engineer pinhead the cenobites they're there to um make sure that you get burnt (laughs) yeah in a sense right (laughs) you will end up in that pit of fire that's right you're going to Uh, apparently a Hellraiser versus Halloween movie almost happened. Um, so in an interview with Game Radar, Doug Bradley said the success of Freddy versus Jason led Hellraiser distributor Dimension Films to flirt with the Hellraiser versus Halloween film. Um, he said, I was actually getting excited by the prospect of this because Clive said he would write it and John Carpenter said he would direct it. Now that kind of that would be changes my mind. That would be really cool. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bradley said, I actually spoke to Clive about it a couple of times and he was interested in finding the places where the Halloween and Hellraiser worlds um, could like intersect. But apparently the person who owned the rights to Halloween just extinguished the idea. So mm. like, won't do it. The fun police. That's all I had. Cool. I, uh, I, I have I one note. One note that I want to bring up, and that's the score and the soundtrack to uh, Hellraiser. Do Um, it. It was done by Christopher Young. You're my horror soundtrack on vinyl 
like a f- expert aficionado. I love the score <laughs> because again, you know, this is a um this is a movie that deals with some themes about hell and demons and sin and all of these things and these you know, really like um, poetic lines from the Cenobites at times and and things like that. And it's very like kind of big in a lot of ways, you know. Um, and I think that the coolest thing about the score by Christopher Young is the, the arrangements and such, they build in this really great way. There's these really great uh, kind of again, just, just really great arrangements that are big for a score, you know, especially a score for an eighties movie where there was like a lot of synth shit going on. And and I like that too. Don't get me wrong. But I think that, you know, the almost like church like score fits with the, the theme so well, and it creates this really big environment around the movie. Um, when you listen to the soundtrack now, um, having seen the film a million times, those big, peaks in that score just really drive home those moments in the film when you know the the walls are opening up and the cenobites are coming out and all these crazy things you know uh i think that it was very outside of the norm for a horror film at that point in time to use one of these almost like uh orchestral type um you know soundtracks um especially in 1987 but i think that it's another thing that made hellraiser kind of unique it was it, it was a film that was very outside of the norm at that time and so yeah i just i can't say enough good things about the score uh i think the uh the the soundtrack now when you listen to it, it holds up really well those those big moments those those big arrangements kind of give you that same feeling that you had when the first time you see it you know it's very like almost gothic kind of you know classic horror and um it was very outside of of the usual for the time so it made just another just one more notch of what made hellraiser so strange but awesome you know i'm so strange but you know strangely unique and um yeah again uh it's it's just it's one of those things that uh like i said it, it made it stand out for the time okay so now it's time to do our bloody knife rating you get five bloody knives to rate the film with so i'm gonna give hellraiser a four out of five for the cinematography, the story, the gore. I'm going to ding it on moving it from uh, the UK to the United States somewhere in an unknown city. <laughs> I don't know if we know where it is, but um, I think it was way ahead of its time and it's a really great film. And I think it broke a lot of ground. And um, it's just one of those things that's going to stay on the test of time. Light Barker just did something really special with this one. What about you? What about you, Matt? I'm going to give Hellraiser a full five out of five. It's not that I think that that means it's a perfect film, and it's not that I think that Hellraiser is a perfect film. It's just a simple matter of I'm the one giving the rating, and so, uh, you know, for me, it's a five out of five. I think Hellraiser did a lot of things that were new and interesting for the time, uh, things you hadn't seen before, and it did them well. It also is a film that's uniquely responsible for my interest in horror and helping me understand what I love about horror. So, therefore, it's always going to be special to me. But one of the things I did want to note about the sequels, if you're a fan of modern horror movies like Sinister, directed by Scott Derrickson, then you should check out. I just saw it for the first time uh, a couple of nights ago. Oh, really? (laughs) It's fantastic. It's great. Yeah, Um, I liked it a lot. So if you're a fan of Scott Derrickson, you should know that Hellraiser Inferno 
was directed by Scott Derrickson. And in my opinion, once you get past Hellraiser 3, there's a lot of really strange Hellraisers out there. But Hellraiser Inferno is one of the strong, late, strongest later Hellraisers. And everybody should check it out because it leaned into, heavily leaned into the theory of, you know, um, the hell of your own making. What you're uh, condemned to in in this Hellraiser canon is the hell of your own making. It's the things that you've done in your life and you've created this hell and now you will live in it. Um, the suffering is very different in this one than in previous installments. And I think it's a different kind of more cerebral kind of torture, but it's a pretty stellar installment for the franchise it also introduces some really cool cenobites some really strange cenobites it's a, a great gore level and again it's done by scott derrickson so it has like a really you'll know it's it's his film when you start watching it is is what we'll say and we'll leave it there and of course doug bradley still plays pinhead in it which is pretty great um yeah so definitely check out hellraiser inferno it has to, it, it, the, the brief synopsis is, is not even the tip of the iceberg. All I can say is if you're a fan of Hellraiser movies and you tuned out after, you know, once we started getting into those later installments, uh, definitely make sure you've seen Inferno. It's really good. Me personally, I have seen no films after Hellraiser in 1987. Oh, so there you go. Add it to the list. <laughs> this is going to be a, a lot. One. I I feel like I should do like a full franchise watch um, at some point. Oh, there you go. I might just do that for the anniversary coming up. So um, the one other thing, because you happen to call out Hellraiser Inferno and Craig Schaefer is in it. Craig Schaefer, who plays the lead character in Nightbreed. Um, and uh, that's where we get the Monsters of Midian. Um, the cool thing is there is like a comics, epic comics crossover between Hellraiser and Nightbreed that I've been looking into. And um, I think there's actually like a graphic novel now. Um, but the, uh, the series oh, uh, it was published out. in um, the Hellraiser versus Nightbreed. One was published in 1991. And um, it's interesting because apparently the Cenobites and um like the monsters of Midian, they have a different name than that. But um, in in the Nightbreed series, they're actually natural enemies or natural like adversaries. Yeah, adversaries. Adversaries. Yep. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting concept. So I I, I want to dig into it some more myself. Um, I found out about it, and I've been looking at how I can get myself a copy. So that is really cool. Yeah. I have to check that out. I, that, that sounds right up my alley, but yes, Craig Schaefer is in Inferno. And again, like I said, you know, it, it, I think it's one of the ones that takes a lot of the Hellraiser kind of themes and ties them up pretty well and, and puts it into a really interesting package. Once you see the whole film, of course you have to, there's not really a huge twist to it, but there is a bit of a twist. And so I'm not going to go down spoiler road. Just watch the film. It's good. It's short. It's good. I like, I'm looking at the synopsis for these other films and I'm like, ooh, there's a hell world where the series has, in this film, spawned a successful MMORPG. Like, RP, video game when? Like, you, somebody could do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't yeah, know if there's a, been yeah. other games. There's definitely been um, comic books and other novels and things like that. I didn't see anything about um video games necessarily oh here we go yeah there is so um apparently 
super 3d noah's ark i don't know it's 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 some kind of it's like a christian themed video game it began as a hellraiser license so (laughs) um probably didn't turn out exactly that great but um yeah i mean as as a universe now that's all an mmorpg needs is a really great universe with a lot of rich lore could you imagine the character creation for your own centibite um i mean if elder scrolls can do it hellraiser can do it (laughs) but um that's all we've got thanks for coming by to chat with me about hellraiser i promise we'll have you back to chat about return of the living dead soon matt Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Absolutely anytime. One of my favorite people to talk horror with. Thanks for gathering around the campfire, listeners. Come Slay Away with us next time. And be sure to follow at Slay Away Radio on Twitter and Facebook. Did you enjoy that episode? If you like the podcast, we encourage you to head over to Podchaser and leave us a review. The best part is it helps put Slay Away in the hands of more horror fans. 